Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartim, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, welcome. Well, here we are. It's Thursday and we're at Southern Utah University and this is the Apex Hour. My name is Lynn Vartan and we are joined in the studio today with our wonderful guest who spoke today and one of our awesome faculty members. This week for our Apex events lectures, we are focusing on the liberal arts. And one of the things that's really interesting is that this is part of a, fi- of a five-year collaboration where we're going to be taking a, one of our Apex events to focus on liberal arts education, uh, the value of it, what does it mean, where are we going, and all of these kinds of things. So let me tell you a little bit about who's in the th- in the studio with us today. Our speaker for this week was uh, Bradley Thompson, Professor Bradley Thompson, uh, who teaches political philosophy at Clemson University and is the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. Um, we've been talking about his writings. He's a well-known author of many books, um, four published books right now, and many more on the way, which we'll get into. The award-winning John Adams and the Spirit of Liberty, Neoconservatism, an Obituary for an Idea, The Revolutionary Writings of John Adams, and Anti-Slavery Political Writings from 1833 to 1860. Welcome, Professor Thompson, thanks for being here. Yeah, hi, Lynn. Thank you very much. It's it's great to be back in uh, Cedar City and at Southern uh, Utah University. Yes, you've you've been here several times, from what I understand. I was first here in 1982, competing in the Rocky Mountain Conference Track and Field Championship. Yeah, and then came back again in 2000 with my family, mm-hmm. uh, visiting the area, and I've been back a couple of times since then. Uh, to visit both the city and and the university. And you lived in Utah for a little while, I understand. That's right. In 99, 2000, we lived in Logan uh, for the year. Well, welcome back to our great state. Yeah, thank you very much. Also joining us in the studio is one of our great faculty members uh, who's, who you are a man of many talents, not just in, in philosophy as a faculty member, but also I know you're a great musical scholar and great writer. Welcome, Kirk Fitzpatrick. Thank you very much. What courses are you teaching this semester? I'm teaching Introduction to Ancient Greek, uh, Second Year uh, Greek Translation and Ethics, and basic logic. Great. And um, I definitely want to talk to you at some point more about music, but you were just telling me that you have a, 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 a liar, a Greek liar kind of on the way for you. On the way. <laughs> I can't wait to see it when it comes and maybe we can have you back to talk about it. Well, that sounds great. 
Well, this week we've been talking about, and, and Professor Thompson's talk was all about the liberal, the liberal arts. And I'd love to just kind of open the conversation up. And, and maybe, Kirk, we'll start with you, because you were sort of the uh, instigator of this five-year series. And maybe talk to us about um, how that came to be and why it came to be and, and how Professor Thompson came to be with us. Thank you. Uh, as a provost fellow, um, I was working with uh, Provost Cook, and we were talking about generating, facilitating discussion on the liberal arts at Southern Utah University and ways we could do that. And one of the ideas that we came up with would be to bring speakers out that are involved in liberal arts education and talk to our students and faculty about the value of an education in the liberal arts and uh, how it can enrich and enhance your life. Mm -hmm. Great. And how did you come, because you were the one who suggested uh, Brad to me, and, and how did you come to know his work? Well, uh, we have a committee. The first thing I did was to put together a committee of faculty across SUU and the liberal arts, and then to meet with them and talk about um, suggestions. We went through a number of different suggestions, and Professor Thompson was uh, the one in the end that we picked. So it was a group effort, and um, we will take the same approach as we start thinking about a speaker for next year. Great. Well, I'd love to kind of just... Uh uh, you know, with, with a radio show with people listening live, they may be uh, taking their kids home from school or who knows where they are or sitting in the coffee house listening. We'd love to just sort of open the discussion about maybe just for anybody who might not know, what what are we talking about when we talk about a liberal arts education? And and so, Brad, do you mind sort of giving us an, a little overview? I know it may be a, a sort of a, a simple definition or maybe not, but just to kind of start the conversation. Yeah, so for me, a liberal education is an education that has, I think, as its ultimate goal, um, the confrontation um, with the great books, the great novels, works of philosophy, great pieces of music, great literature, great architecture uh, of Western civilization. And it's to try and understand the peaks of human excellence. Mm. So, you know, over the course of 2,500 years, um, we have a tra we have traditions in in philosophy and literature and music and painting, which I think rise to levels, uh, transcendent levels, even of, of human greatness, mm -hmm. to which I think we are we all benefit um, by being exposed to. So for me, liberal education is introducing young people to um, to to, in my case, to great books and having them engage with these books and having them enter a world which is entirely foreign to the world. Um, from which they have come, because that's that's what a great book does, right? It takes you into a new world where you where you're introduced to to characters um, who you might not have ever experienced in your life before, and and those characters take us to new places. Sometimes they take us to higher places. Sometimes they take us to lower places, right? And 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 it's our engagement with these ideas that I think improves us as human beings. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's what a liberal education is all about. It's, it's about an exposure to the best 
um, within us to the best um, that uh, our civilization has produced over 2,500 years. And, and I think that makes us better people as a, as a consequence. Yeah, that's a fantastic definition. Thank you. It's so clear and, and really well put. Kirk, do you have anything to add to that from your experience? One thing I think that might surprise people about the history of the liberal arts is that we have uh, abstract mathematics and geometry, higher mathematics involved in the tradition of the liberal arts. Um, we have music involved. We have the fine arts involved. We have history and philosophy and literature. And today, we often think about those things as being very distinct, and we fail to see the relations that are there uh, to be seen in studying those subjects together and in thinking about our theoretical commitments and our commitments to values. And uh, I think the older tradition of the liberal arts shows us connections that are harder to see in the way that we have compartmentalized our contemporary approach to mm -hmm. education. That's a really good point. And that's something that we've been getting into quite a bit in the conversations today is that when we talk about the liberal arts, we're not just talking about one thing. We're not just talking about history or literature, but, but mathematics, science, music, all of these things are part of this greater liberal arts conversation. And to wit, sometimes we call it more a classical education. Do you prefer that term? Um, I, I, I do like the idea, uh, and I often use the term of a classical education. Um, and this is the kind of education that, for instance, America's founding fathers had. Mm -hmm. So part of, I think, a liberal education and one that we're trying to create at my university, Clemson University, is actually based on the kind of education that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson had when, when they were young men. And so it's an engagement with uh, the classical texts of uh, ancient Athens and Rome primarily, uh, sometimes Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and, and these are texts that have, I think, as their primary concern, the formation of a complete human being, the formation of, of the soul, considerations of the, of the sort of the great perennial questions that confront all of us as human beings, right? What is justice? What is freedom? What is friendship? Uh, what is human excellence? What is nobility? Um, and maybe for me, the, the, the most important question is, how should I live my life? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's what these texts do. They challenge us to think seriously and deeply, and oftentimes, maybe for the first time in our lives, about that kind of question. How should I live my life? And there's, you know, there's not a, there's not a, a human being alive, uh, and throughout all of history who hasn't in some way thought about that question. And we're often asked, um, I'm sure this is true, uh, uh, Kirk, as well for you, we're often asked, well, you know, what can one do with a degree in the humanities or the liberal arts? And for me, it's the most practical degree there is because it's concerned with the overarching of the architectonic concern of human life, right? It, it teaches us to think seriously about the meaning of our lives and our role in the world as, 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 as parents, as friends, as, um, as, uh, sons and daughters, as colleagues. And it encourages us to be better than we otherwise would be. Mm -hmm. 
That's it's so true. And I, I think it's a great, I want to just sort of zero in on one of those points about uh, these degrees being practical degrees. And I know that you said that earlier today. And I think we've all experienced that. And Kirk, you've probably experienced that too. And I know it came up even yesterday in our discussion with the philosophy club, people saying that, oh, you know, I get uh, sort of angry responses from parents from their kids who want to major in philosophy. But you're really turning the table on that, that this is one of the most practical degrees and that that these degrees in the humanities are actually highly desired in the workforce. And I think you probably have some um, backing information, either of you, for that. Do you have anything to, to comment more on that? Well, in philosophy, the American Philosophical Association has uh, recently put up on their website uh, under the title Why Study Philosophy a number of statistics about uh, the study of, of philosophy and, and what our graduates go on to do that are really very surprising to people not familiar with the discipline. Um, we turn in some of the highest scores on the LSAT exam, oh, wow. um, along with mathematics, and uh -huh. that's over the past 30 years. Uh -huh. uh, we uh, have one of the highest acceptance rates to medical school of any undergraduate degree, over 50%. We turn in some of the highest scores on the graduate record exam. So one thing that becomes clear about the study of philosophy is that you're able to read and critically analyze and write about uh, issues and complex mm -hmm. issues. We practice on some of the uh, great texts historically, and they give us the opportunity to work at a very high level with those things. And those skills transfer directly into problem solving and, and uh, as we see in, in those exams. So true. We see it in the arts as well. You know, um, we we have some similar things where people really, we have uh, a lot of um, research that shows that people really want to hire people who come out of the arts because they know how to take a project to completion. They know how to problem solve all these, all these great skills. So it's great to hear that those degrees are worthwhile. Great. Well, um, we, it's already time for our first musical break, which is amazing. Um, when we come back, I'd love to get into talking, uh, Brad, with you about your writing and, and, and how that process unfolds and, and your upcoming projects and all those things. But first, we have a couple songs to play. Um, I'm going to play you one song. I've been playing this, uh, this uh, album all day today. And this is this uh, band. It's called the Cashmere Stage Band. And um, this is a album that was uh, is, is newly found. It's an album from the early 60s, and it's actually a high school jazz band. So check it out and see what you, what you think. This is the Cashmere Stage Band. The song is called Cash Register, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. <laughs> Oh, 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 
Right. Well, welcome back. Once again, this is the Apex Hour. I'm Lynn Vartan, and you're listening to KSUU Thunder 91.1. In the studio today, we are discussing the liberal arts and education and also the work of Professor Bradley Thompson. So welcome back into the studio. Great. Great to be here. And we're joined with our fellow faculty member at SUU, Kirk Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. Thank you. I'd love to get into in this seg- segment to talk to uh, Professor Thompson about some of your writing. And um, we've been digging into it. I mean, you are just such a scholar of John Adams. And you have two books. We have The Spirit of Liberty and then the collection of his writings. Can you tell me a little bit about how that passion or that um, research for him started in your life? Well, my interest in John Adams and all things American, and more particularly the American Revolution, actually actually goes back to the time when I was seven years old. Seven? Uh, seven. Uh, a little boy living in Ontario, Canada. And I read a book called The How and Why Wonder Book of the American Revolution. Wow. And this was... Uh, 
probably one of the most important books I ever read in my life because from that moment forward, I knew that I was an American born in the wrong country. <laughs> and, That's great. <laughs> yeah, and so I ha I've had this lifelong um, uh, interest and passion for and, and, and love of the United States, Amer of American history. And of the revolution in particular. So it's, it's something that's been with me since the time I was a boy. And, um, when I went to graduate school, um, I went and I studied with, um, I, I found, uh, the world's greatest historian of the American Revolution, Gordon S. Wood. And, um, spent several years with him studying the revolution in great depth. And I came to realize, that John Adams um, was the most uh, neglected of all of America's founding fathers. So over the course of the 20th century, there were dozens, scores, maybe hundreds of books on Thomas Jefferson, for instance. But there was just uh, a small handful of books on John Adams, and there hadn't been one written in 40 years. So I, I started reading a lot of John Adams, and I realized that he was not only the most neglected founding father, but he came to be, in my view, the greatest of America's founding father. So I wrote a doctoral dissertation on John Adams, uh, and then a couple of years after, um, uh, after I finished the dissertation, I uh, published it as a book. And what's been really gratifying is the book was published in 1998. And uh, f I think if I can say this from that point forward, there was a kind of uh, a wave of books that had been published on John Adams. And he's really come back um, uh, to the forefront of, of our understanding of the American Re Revolution. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's, that's essentially how I got into all things American first and then into John Adams in particular. That's just amazing that as a boy, you had that connection with the U.S. I mean, do you remember any uh, more detail about those thoughts? Was it just the ideal, the ideological concept of freedom here? What, what particularly drew you? Yeah, no, I think you just identified the exact word freedom. Oh. Um, and Canada at the time I was growing up, uh, in the sixties, seventies and eighties was a relatively free place. But I saw the United States uh, as as the land uh, of of the free, and I actually lived relatively close to the American border. So mm -hmm. I was born and raised in the honeymoon capital of the world, Niagara Falls, Ontario. Right. <laughs> um, so we were just across the river from Niagara Falls and or from the United States, and so. I watched American television um, regularly, and we always vacationed in the United States. So, um, it, it I, let's put it this way: I never felt at home in Canada mm. from the time I was a boy. I never felt as though it were my country, hmm. and I always uh, identified as an American, even as a boy. That's fascinating. Well, I'd love to get a little bit more into the discussion about John Adams because there's a, a few things that I've heard in other interviews that, that really stuck out to me and they've sort of come full circle with some of the other things. One of the things that you said that, that you do for your own sort of uh, betterment of self is that you take a long walk or a long run and, and have a question that you ask yourself. And I wonder that sort of ties in uh, you, you talk about John Adams and his concept of self, self-government and, and how he really didn't let one moment pass where he wasn't trying to improve himself. Can you share with us a little bit about 
your process and his process and and those kinds of things. Yeah. So I'll start with John Adams. So when he was a very young man, just after he graduated from Harvard College, um, he started keeping a diary. And he used this diary um, as a tool for self uh, improvement and self examination and self perfection, and it's an ex- it's an extraordinary document. And there are these wonderful passages where he's imploring himself uh, to to overcome his lethargy mm. uh, and his weaknesses of one kind or another. And he challenges himself uh, to become a better person, uh, to become a better person um, academically, to become a better person morally, to become a better son, a better brother, a, b- a better friend. Um, but what was most interesting about Adams is from a very early date, you can see him mounting the ladder of fame, by mm-hmm. which I mean, uh, he as a young man in, in his early 20s, he was obsessed with the idea of greatness. So here you have this young man um, who he was actually at the time, he was teaching in a one-room schoolhouse in Worcester, Massachusetts, and which at that time was literally on uh, the edge of Western civilization. Right. And, and he is obsessed with how he can become, uh, how he can become a great man. Uh, and so he imagines what he might be if he had the opportunity. And then when the Stamp Act is passed in 1765, he saw, you know, he saw that as his opportunity. Uh, and that was the moment when he launched his career. So in my own life, um, uh, it, it, I believe it's important to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk when it comes to questions of moral character. Mm-hmm. And so I spend, I try to spend far less time judging other people and more time judging myself. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and what's most important to me in my life is to become a better person. Uh, than I have been or that I am at any given moment. That way I'll be a better son, a better husband, a better father, a better colleague, a better friend. Um, And maybe most importantly, I'll be able to accomplish all the things in life that I want to accomplish. So yes, I, um, every day I go for a long run or a long walk. And at a certain point um, in um, these excursions, uh, I ask myself every day this one question, Am I right with myself? Mm. Right? By which I mean, have, have I every day, have I been living up to my own avowed moral principles? Right. Right? And, and, and sometimes the answer, unfortunately, is no. Yeah. Sometimes I haven't produced as much as I would have wanted to, you know, I, I slept in till six o'clock in the morning. Right. Uh, well, that doesn't I, sound like sleeping in. <laughs> I, I I didn't I didn't get up and get after it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I didn't produce as much as I should have. Or I may have said something cross yeah. uh, to uh, somebody close to me or to a colleague. And so, anyway, the point being is I I find it an incredibly useful thing to um, introspect to turn inward on myself, examine who I am and what I am. Uh, every day, and am I living up to my own avowed values? I'd love to kind of turn that lens a little bit for for both of you to to teaching, because I think that 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 um, well, several of those things, not only just the introspection, but the pursuit of greatness and um, that kind of observation, is something that 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 I I know I love to try to get into my teaching. And how how do either of you? I mean. Uh, d- 
impart this in your teaching? How, how can we get some of these concepts in? And, and, and just to get past not just that, well, we should study the liberal arts, and that's the answer, I mean, but to get a little bit more deeper into it. And, and for anybody listening who, who may be looking for ways, e- either as a parent or as a teacher, how can we start to inspire some of these ideas that, that we see from John Adams, or that we've incorporated in our own lives, this pursuit of greatness, or um, this introspection, or this striving quality. Do you have a, either of you have any thoughts about that? Well, in my classes, I we often read challenging material that pushes the students, and they will often ask questions. And I often have to admit that I don't know the answer mm. to that question. And I think that's a good start. Mm-hmm. And from there. Hopefully, I can consistently go out and try and remedy that and come back to them and tell them what I found out or what the possible answers, suggested answers have been. And so one way I think that we can do that with our students is to try and model the very behavior that we're asking them to demonstrate. Um, We don't expect them to know it all. Otherwise, there's nothing to learn. Mm -hmm. And so if I can demonstrate to them that I'm in the same process that I'm uh, engaging them in and inviting them to explore, that we can do this together, then hopefully that shows them that this is a process that can go on through life. And uh, I can show them what it looks like for better or worse. I love that. I And I know I, I remember learning that myself, like, oh, I don't really need to have all the answers. I mean, it's not the point to have all the answers. I mean, it, it's there's so much more to it. That's right. great. I love that. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And that's I think that's because we're on a journey, mm-hmm. right? When And we're on a journey together with our students. Uh, and I tell my students all, all the time that that uh, I'm just the guide. That's, that's my role in the classroom is I'm the guide and we're, we're, we're hiking to the mountaintop and I'm just, I'm guiding you up, but we're walking together. Mm-hmm. We're struggling together. We're engaging ideas together. I'm not here to tell you what to think. Um, you need to come to that on, on your own terms. And, um, I want them to, I want my students to feel as though they are in a shared intellectual, uh, experience with with me, their 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 professor. I also want my students to be ambitious. Right. So this semester, I'm teaching a course at Clemson University um, on the political thought of the American founding. And on the first day, I told my students, I guaranteed them that at the end of the semester, they would know this subject, the political thought of America's founding fathers, better than any other college students in America, including students at all the Ivy League universities. If they did one thing, they worked hard. If they stuck with me reading this difficult material and they worked as hard as they possibly could, that at the end of the semester, they could legitimately say that they know as college students more about the American founding than students in any other college in America. And that's, to them, I think it's inspiring, right? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. It kind of sparks something in them. And then the final thing I would say in my own class is um, I, I do take my teaching seriously. And when I walk into class every single day, I want that class that day to be the best class I have ever taught in my life. 
right? And so I want my students to think, to feel, to know that not only are they getting their money's worth, and they should be getting their money's worth, but I want them to to see that that this person who's standing in front of them ha- cares enough about them as students that they're willing to give it all, uh, to lay it on the line every day uh, in, in, in the classroom. Because um, when they leave my classroom, I want them to go out into the world and to do the same thing, mm-hmm. right? I want them to go out when, when they graduate from college uh, and go out into the world. I want, I, my hope for my students is that they will, that they, every day that they'll, they'll give it their very, very best. I think that's fantastic. And I, I, I really subscribe to that. And I love hearing that in other people, you know, that, that modeling of excellence from our own desire for, for excellence in our teaching. Yesterday, we were having this great conversation with the philosophy club, and we got into a little bit about uh, what it takes to teach. And I, I really uh, connected with the three things that you said about the three things that it takes to teach. And um, if I if I'm remembering right, it was one, the knowledge of the subject, um, two, the passion for it, and then Three, that, um, that, that mastery of teaching, the, the ability to teach that's much more elusive. And I was wondering if in this time together, you could elaborate a little bit more on that and, or, or even just repeat it in more detail. Cause I just found it so, mm. so very valuable and, and really impactful to me and, and my ideology. Sure. I, well, you know, I, I think, Unfortunately, even tragically, that in our school system, both in the elementary and secondary schools, I think we have, unfortunately, a deficit of great teaching. Uh, And the reason why we have a deficit of great teaching, although there are truly fabulous, wonderful uh, teachers um, in in our K through 12 schools, but I think one of the one of the problems that inhibits greatness in teaching in the schools is that. We don't require our future teachers to have degrees in the subjects that they will be teaching. So, for instance, if you're going to be a chemistry or a mathematics teacher or a history teacher um, in a secondary school, for instance, you should have, in my view, a major in that subject. Because, I mean... When, when you actually stand in front of a classroom, oddly enough, it's important that you actually know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> that you have a deep and abiding knowledge uh, of, of the subject. Um, and then the second thing you have to have in the classroom, uh, because the students, they see this, you have to have a love and a passion for the subject. But it turns out you can only have a love and a passion for the subject if you've actually studied the subject. Right. right. You have to you have to know what it is. That's how you get the love and the passion right. for it. So the the two work together um, hand in hand. And then the third thing I think is teaching is not a science. Teaching right. is an art. And the best way to learn the art of teaching is to is to observe great teachers. And I think we have to find a better way. And this is true not only at the elementary and secondary level levels, but even I think at universities, we have to put uh, our future teachers and professors in front of master teachers Mm -hmm. uh, to see how they do it. Because it's, it is an acquired skill, right? And there are tricks to the trade. um, And, uh, and, but it's, it's something that can be learned. But you don't learn about how to be a great teacher from a textbook on right. how to be a great teacher. Right. You learn how to be a great teacher 
by watching great teachers. Yeah. And, and Kirk, how, how about you? How do you feel about the teaching of teaching? Well, I think those are great observations by Professor Thompson, and I, I entirely agree. Yeah. You really need to know the subject. And, yeah. Um, but the, uh, the passion for the subject, I think, is really important. The students recognize that, and they get excited about it as well. If you're teaching a subject in a way that has no verve, um, it's hard to expect them to have any passion for the subject. For exactly. heaven's sakes, you don't, right? right? Exactly. So that is something that can go an awfully long way in getting students, they can watch your excitement and your passion and love for the subject. And that's often infectious. When we see someone do something that he or she loves to do and is good at doing, <laughs> then um, we want that. Right. We, we want that experience. Yeah, great. Well, it's time for another musical break. And when we come back, I'd love to talk to both of you about your your writing process. I'm very interested in in how we do what we do um, as as creators and and uh, writing and doing all different kinds of things. And so I'd love to sort of ask you some questions about how both of you um, view your own writing processes. But in the meantime, we have a song, and this is a special song for Professor Thompson uh, because it's a song that he mentioned yesterday when we had one of our meetings. This is a song from the Smashing Pumpkins, and it's 19. 79. And you had mentioned uh, 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 this song sort of as a uh, an icon of your childhood. Is that right? Yeah. So the YouTube video of, of this song um, basically summed up my life as a profligate teenager <laughs> in southern Ontario. Um, so I, I, I recognized myself uh, in the in the video. Well, there you have it. Okay, well, this is the Smashing Pumpkins, and it's 1979, and this is the Apex Hour, KSUU, Thunder 91.1. <laughs>
Okay, well, welcome back to the Apex Hour. That was the Smashing Pumpkins, 1979. And that particular version was a remastered version from 2012. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1. And we are back with Brad Thompson and Kirk Fitzpatrick. And now we're going to get into talking a little bit about the writing process. So Kirk, if I could start with you, I'm curious about your writing process. Uh, is it something that you work on at certain periods of time? Or is it something that's kind of always ongoing? Do you have certain rituals? Do you have a lot of editing? What's your process like? It, it's something that goes on and on and on. <laughs> on and, and on yeah, and on. A, and a project on. <laughs> will finish and you'll take a little break, a couple mm -hmm. of weeks and be glad. And mm -hmm. then you start to miss the process. And once it becomes habitual, you get right back to it. Yeah. Um, I'm often surprised in the process of writing uh, with reading what I've written as I write and edit, and most of it gets on the on the on the floor on yeah. the cutting room floor, um, and I see things connections that maybe have developed over a period of weeks oh. that I didn't see happening as they happened, and then I start reading a manuscript and seeing things even though I wrote it, seeing things that I connections I hadn't seen. Um, yeah. I enjoy the process an, an awful lot. It, it's um, it's a labor of love. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's often frustrating. Uh -huh. Most of what I write never sees the light of day. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes it comes together and uh, you can say, okay, I've thought through that important or interesting idea. I think I understand it better than I did. And you mentioned the cutting room floor or, or the editing process. Do you do you keep everything, or once it's gone, it's gone, never to be seen again? Well, they're in electronic files, <laughs> so I don't actually put them in the trash right, and right. take it out mm. usually. But in the multiple drafts, as we get up into twenty and thirty drafts, uh, oh, there's yeah. an awful lot there that just uh, didn't end up. Sometimes it's not that it wasn't well done but it doesn't end up fitting in the final project. Right. And those are sometimes the hardest cuts to mm -hmm. make. Uh, you write something and you're attached to it and it works well, and it doesn't end up fitting in the paper as the paper comes together. Right. And what are you working on right now? Where is your research taking you? Right now, I'm uh, over the last 10 years, I've been working on a series of essays uh, on Plato's Republic, mm -hmm. uh, leadership in Plato's Republic. And I uh, correlated the musical modes with the constitutions and specified what those notes were, and then went through the proper meters and correlated them with the constitutions and the content of stories and um, uh, talked about the constitutions uh, and then uh, realized after about eight years, nine years of this, oh my gosh, this is actually a coherent work. And when I put them together, I now can actually play the musical modes that Plato has attached to the aristocracy and democracy, oligarchy, democracy, and tyranny. So I hope in the, you mentioned the Greek lyre, I hope in the next six months to get those put together and actually let the world hear exactly what it was that Plato is referring to in the Republic. That is so cool. Fascinating. I can't wait. And are, are those articles 
articles in their separated form available right now if anybody is interested in getting at them or should they wait for the compiled version? Yes, they've all been published independently because I didn't know they would uh, uh, I didn't know if they would fall fall apart or, uh-huh. or fall together. And uh, so they've all been published out in different sources. And so now I have two bookend chapters I need to write, an introduction to the book, and then the appendix, which will actually have, hopefully, uh, access to uh, a file to hear the music. That just sounds like such a great project. Thank you. We'll be on the lookout for that. Thank you And as soon as it published, we'll have to have you come back and talk about all of it and maybe play some of it for us. Thank you. I would love to. Oh, that sounds great. Well, Brad, uh, we were talking a little bit about your about your writing process, mm-hmm. and um, I'd love to know more and more detail. And I know you have a book that's just finished mm-hmm. and and coming out already out or coming out. It'll be coming out next year. Okay, great. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So um, I've just completed a book, the title of which is America's Revolutionary Mind. Great. Colon. A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. Wow. And it's an intellectual history of the American Revolution that focuses on the Declaration of Independence. And there's kind of an interesting story behind uh, the writing of this book. So in June of 2016, I read a very bad book on the Declaration of Independence. (laughs) That offended all of my sensibilities, the sensibilities that I had formed when I was seven years old when I read the How and Why Wonder Book of the American Revolution. And so I said, this can't stand. Uh, And I was actually in the middle of uh, almost, I was three quarters of the way uh, through finishing another book project. But I said, this cannot stand. I've got to write my own book on the Declaration of Independence. So I gave myself the following task, which was, uh, I said, you can... Take some time off from finishing the other book um, and write a book on the Declaration of Independence. But the caveat was it had to be written in one year. Oh, wow. So on July 1st, 2016, I started writing this book, uh, which would become America's Revolutionary Mind. Uh, and uh, to my su- my own surprise, uh, 600 pages later, wow. uh, I finished it on June 30th, 2017, exactly <laughs> one year to the day. How did you pace yourself? So um, I have a pretty strict uh, writing regimen. Um, I get up every morning, um, seven days a week at 4.35 o'clock. Wow. And uh, I get a cup of coffee and I'm writing uh, or just working uh uh, by six. And I usually try to work until about noon. So I, I get six hours in um, every day, seven days a week. Wow. Um, so I just block out this big chunk of time. And uh, this particular book, um, I'm very proud to say I wrote um, in a new office uh, that oh. I have, which I call my redneck office. I and, love it. <laughs> yeah. And my redneck office is too... Um, Adirondack chairs uh, uh, put together side by side um, with a cooler beside uh, one of them. And uh, I have my laptop on the armrest and all of my books sitting on the cooler uh, beside me on the other side. And my redneck office is at the very bottom of my driveway facing the backyard. Ah, That's awesome. Um, So, uh, and because... uh, 
you know, South Carolina is reasonably warm in, throughout the year. I may, I was able to, to write outside, um, in my redneck office. And then the only, the only time I can is when it rains and I just move it, um, into my garage. And so this book was written at the bottom of my driveway and or in my garage. That's uh, beautiful. Last year. I think that's beautiful. Within yeah. a year's time with this gorgeous view and just having the air hit your skin and yeah. everything, it's just an incredible thing. I, I love it. That's fantastic. Tell us one more time for our listeners the title and when it would be available. Right. So the title of the book is America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. And uh, it's going to be uh, published uh, with a trade publisher, Encounter uh, Books. And um, I'm not sure on the exact publication date, but it'll be sometime in 2019. Okay, great. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. Well, I can't believe we're almost out of time, uh, but I have to do my favorite thing, which we do every week here, which is uh, what's turning you on this week? And it's um, this can be anything. It can be TV, it could be a podcast, it could be music, it could be a song, it could be uh, a movie, it could be a book, it could kind of be anything. It's just sort of one of these off-the-cuff questions of, you know, what, what's kind of something that's really caught your fancy this week? Um, anybody have an idea of one they want to start with? Well, sure, for me, and th- it comes as a result of being here at... Um, uh, in Cedar City, giving my talk today on liberal education, I had cause to listen again uh, to my absolute favorite piece of music, which is Gregorio Lagri's Miserere Mea Deus, mm-hmm. um, which I, I really honestly think is the single most beautiful piece of music ever composed. And it's it's a piece of music that when I was a very young man in my early 20s, uh, it, um, it had a profound impact on me. Oh, that's beautiful. And we've been talking about this piece quite a bit. Would you care to share that story? Because it's actually quite a unique, yeah. I mean, we almost didn't have this piece or know about this piece. Yeah, no, it's, it's an extraordinary story. So it was composed by Gregorio Allegri in 1638, approximately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it was, it was only to be played in the Sistine Chapel at the Vatican twice a year. And so for almost 150 years, the only people in the entire world who heard this piece of music uh, were people who were visiting the Sistine Chapel on those two days. And there was a... um, uh, the, the popes, all popes, um, between the time it was composed until 1770... I had forbade it from being transcribed uh, and shared with the rest of the world. And then in 1770, a 14-year-old boy uh, was visiting the Vatican in the Sistine Chapel, and they just happened to be playing uh, Allegre's Miserere on, on that day. And it was a boy genius. And he went home to his apartment uh, after he heard it, and he transcribed it from memory. Mm-hmm. And... That 14-year-old boy's name was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. It's such a great wow. story. Isn't that <laughs> oh, if you haven't heard that piece, it's really a beautiful uh, a vocal uh, ensemble work, and it's uh, two different vocal groups that that uh, are are playing and one uh, singing. One is in a, a more sort of traditional style, and one is in a little bit more of an ornamented style. So definitely check it out. Well, Kirk, how about you? What's turning you on this week? One thing I've been 
playing around with this week is uh, investigating the difference between the older style of tuning, the the just tuning as opposed to the well-tempered oh my and gosh, to wow. look mathematically at some of the differences that happened when we went to the well-tempered system right and i got an app uh tuner that allows me to use the just tuning and to i've been tuning some of my guitars to ancient pythagorean um, modes and playing around with them, getting ready for my lyre to come. And so hopefully I'll be ready. I'm just fascinated that music changed so much and that there's so much dissonance in, um, in, in modern music, contemporary music and how pure, like almost sweet the, uh, older tuning methods were. Yeah. And that's, that is so, that's so amazing. I mean, I've, when I've worked with, um, some vocal ensembles, uh, for example, the Hillier Ensemble is one, this great, um, British singing group. And they, they specialize in a lot of, of this, this older style of tuning. And, and, uh, basically just to put it in a nutshell, that the distance between the notes on the piano is not the same as it has been for the last 250 years. And, and so what, what, uh, Kirk is speaking about is this difference in, in tuning that has happened in instruments but that is quite a topic and to be tuning and playing in those tuning systems is fascinating that's amazing it's very strange how different it sounds in trying to train your ear absolutely uh, to hear the difference absolutely yeah well that's another conversation we can have at another time well thank you for sharing that well that's about all the time that we have today i'd like to say thank you so much to my guest professor thompson and professor kirk fitzpatrick um and thank you so much for being with me today and sharing your time. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you very much. All right. Well, we're going to sign off for now. Um, and we will look forward to seeing you next week and listening to the Apex Hour. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.